Have you ever been interrupted? Raise your hand. Yes? I've been interrupted. You? Maybe it's a situation where you're trying to teach a lesson at a school. I know we have multiple teachers here. Um, or maybe it's uh, an experience where you're having a conversation with another adult and your child perceives that you and whatever their need is and how you can meet their need is way more important than your conversation that you're having right there. It's an interruption. This idea, when I was thinking of this idea of interruption, a moment, very vivid moment, um, when my time here came to mind, about three years ago I was an intern here at Crosspoint, and during the summer we have family services where we teach a children's lesson right before we do the Sunday morning sermon, and it was my uh, turn to do so as an, as an intern, and I was teaching on Jesus walking on the water and, and Peter getting out of the boat, and then there was this little boy who wanted me to see his new toy so badly that he thought it was more important to interrupt the teaching um, in a Sunday morning service, and it was one that I did not handle, I don't think, that well. I think I could have handled it better, um, but needless to say, it was a, an interruption that I've experienced um, that is very vivid in my memory. I could give more examples of what interruptions could be and how they make us feel, but I think it's safe to say that we have all felt that feeling. Maybe a little frustration as we are interrupted by someone or something. We see the same concept of interruption at the beginning of our text today. So if you have your Bibles with you, please meet me in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. We'll start at verse 13. Um, to give some context before we start reading, if you've been here at Crosspoint the last couple Sundays, we've been going through this chapter of Luke 12. Um, in the beginning of Luke 12, we see Jesus teaching to a crowd. In Luke 12, 1, we see this verse. Meanwhile, a crowd of many thousands came together so that they were trampling one another and began to say to his disciples, or teach his disciples first, that is the first uh, couple, 10, 12 verses of Luke 12. So he's teaching to this huge crowd of multiple thousands. And then in verse 13, we see an interruption. Someone interrupts Jesus' teaching. Verse 13. Someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And I just want to stop right there. For a moment. I don't know about you, but if I'm teaching a crowd of multiple thousands and someone interrupts me with this kind of question or concern, one, I'm probably really annoyed at him right now. Two, I'm probably going to ignore him and focus on what I was originally saying. I mean, especially like Let's just picture this for a moment. Uh, I'm not saying this is how Jesus would react, but this is how Kent would react. And if I'm in Jesus' shoes, I have uh, Peter right beside me, right? And I'm going to use him as my security guard and be like, hey, Peter, you see that, see that guy over there? Like, he's kind of distracting. I think you know what to do. Like, hey, Peter, by the way, spare the ear this time. Like, I, I, it's, it's one of those things like... I know I'm going to be struggling with my selfish, my, my prideful 
attitude if someone does that to me. But praise God, that's not how Jesus reacts to this man. Jesus answers in a much different way. Verse 14, let's read. Friend, he said to him, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? He then told him, watch out and be on guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Did you catch this? Jesus' response to this random man who's interrupted his teaching in front of thousands of people. His answer is one that's filled with grace and with truth, things that we constantly see about Christ, grace and truth. It's the complete opposite of pride and selfishness of how I would have reacted. We see grace in how Jesus addresses the man. The CSB translation, the one that we have on the screen, the one that I'm reading from, uh, it uses this word friend. It comes from this Greek word anthrope. The root word of this is anthropos, which means man. Now, this is a Greek lesson. It's going to be crucial to understanding Jesus showing this man grace. So stick, stick with me for a little bit. Anthropos, when you think anthropos, think anthropology, or anthropology, which is what? The study of man. So you think man, we think anthropos. But the CSB translates this as friend. Now, why did they do that if anthropos means man? Here's this second part of the Greek uh, and the final part of the Greek lesson, is that the grammatical case used for this word is what's called the vocative form. Now, why is that important? Evocative is a word or phrase used to address a reader or listener directly, usually in form of a personal name, a title, or a term of endearment. Hence why the CSB translates it as friend. So it's like this. Instead of Jesus saying to this man in an angry tone, man, what are you doing? Don't you see this? He says it in endearing terms, friend. Like, I care about you. I'm not going to blow you out. I care about you, friend. And that's how he responds to him. Calls him friend. We see this grace-filled attitude towards this person in Jesus. We see grace in the attitude as he calls him friend. And then we see truth as Jesus addresses the heart of the man. This man comes with an external problem that he thinks is more important than what Jesus is currently teaching. And even though this man, in his own right, was right to go to a rabbi or a teacher, and that's what Jesus was, uh, when he's addressing this matter of inheritance, it's usually what happened in Jewish culture, those people took care of those, those matters. The issue is he came with a heart attitude problem. He came with an attitude of greed. And we see this as Jesus addresses his external injustice without the man first reflecting on his own inward attitude. Now, some of this is a good reminder, and just a little side note, is that before we go yelling and exclaiming injustice or something that, hey, that's not fair, just another way to put the word injustice, that's not fair, before we go yelling or exclaiming some of those things about what we are feeling, we need to ask ourselves, are we doing it with a pure heart? Are we doing it with one that is filled with grace and mercy? Or is it filled with greed and selfishness? 
hear me out. What I'm not saying is don't pursue justice when something wrong happens, but rather pursue justice with a pure heart. We see this in Micah 6.8. Micah 6.8 says, Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. We see here that something that is unjust is uh, we should pursue justice or act justly, but do it with an attitude of humility, an attitude of love, an attitude of grace. Okay? Okay, let's get back to our story. Jesus knows this man's heart, and he knows that he is showing with this inward attitude problem when he cl- exclaims his injustice problem that he is having. This, that's not fair issue. Now, a commentator puts uh, Jesus' response um, like this. Jesus' refusal to answer is not a denial of his rights or ability to answer, nor of his concern for social and ethical matters. Rather, he turns directly to an area which others have no right to judge, the question of motivation. See, Jesus, the Son of God, knowing the motivation, being the one who can only call out that true Um, greed attitude that this man is having in his heart. He calls out his sin. Now, what is greed? We've been saying this word a lot this morning already. What is greed? How do we define it? Greed is defined as an excessive desire for more of something, especially when it comes to wealth or possessions. And we see this on display as this man values his financial situation so much so that, again, he interrupts Jesus. Son of God, God in flesh, and his teaching to multiple thousands. Just let that resonate. Like, it still blows my mind that this man had the guts to do that. But I think that's where his heart is at. And in his grace and mercy, Jesus takes time to address this man's heart with a parable. We see this in verse 16. So let's pick it up. Luke 12, verse 16. Then he, being Jesus, told him them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. And then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That is how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. In this parable that Jesus is telling to the people listening, and especially to this man who has this greedy heart, we see three truths about people um, who are greedy, who struggle with greed. Number one, they're concerned about their own interests over the interests of others. And we see this on display. Let's just reread the first couple verses again. A rich man's land was very productive. Now let's just catch first personal pronouns or how often this person refers to himself. Ready? Verse 17, he thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I will tear down my barns, build bigger ones, and I'll store all my grain, my goods there. And then I'll say to myself, you have many goods goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. 
If that doesn't describe someone who is um, too focused on their own interests and not the interests of others, I don't know what quite does. This man was someone who's probably owned lots of land. With lots of land comes lots of workers. Peasants, poor people who uh, are, are farmers working for this, this man. This man had a great harvest. And he only thought of himself when dealing with the surplus. That he could have this cushy lifestyle instead of even considering giving it away to the people who harvested it for him. His own interests blinded him and the needs of the needs and interests of others. That's number one. Number two thing, truth that we can see about people who struggle with greed is this. They think materials can bring them happiness. We see this in this uh, verse 19 where he says, uh, you have many good sort for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. They think that materials can bring them joy. Materials can bring them happiness. That if they have something else or just more of something, that that's when they'll be truly happy. They think that this lifestyle of, of, of leisure is something that's going to bring them joy. They think that material goods will make them feel better. Third truth we see about greed in this passage is people who struggle with greed think that they are in control of their own lives. They have this attitude of, I can get what I want when I want it. One commentator puts it bluntly, his words, not mine, when I read this quote, says this, the really stupid thing was the rich man's easy assurance that the future was in his control. I'll read it one more time. Again, commentator's words, not mine. The really stupid thing was the rich man's easy assurance that the future was in his control. He thought he could control his outcome, control his life. It's no wonder why God, God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you. So, three things we see. They're concerned about their own interests rather than the interests of others. They think materials can bring them happiness, and they think they are in control of their own lives. To summarize greedy people, they, they live this lie that life is about themselves rather than a life that is lived to glorify God and to serve others. Now, if any of you are like me, you might be convicted of moments that you've had in the past or present, of moments of greed. When I go through these three descriptions of what classifies greedy people or the truths that are about people who struggle with greed, like, I'm broken. Like, I see this, and then I realize what's actually happening. For example, number one, when they're concerned about their own interests over the interests of others, I see that as selfishness. There's a lot more going on here than just when we say the sin of greed. We see selfishness on display. The second uh, truth about greedy people, we, we see this thing called idolatry. They think something else will bring them happiness. They put their hope in something else other than Jesus. Other than God, we see idolatry. The third thing that we see about the third truth 
about greedy people is that this describes unbelief. Describes not trusting God. They think that they are in control, that they are the ones that can change their lives, make their decisions, rather than trusting in God and realizing that He is in control and being dependent on Him. Selfishness, idolatry, and unbelief is something that we see when we struggle with greed. Those are the deeper issues that are happening when we see greed. This desire for more and more and more. Now, I want to tell you that there's hope. I don't want to stay in this place of despair, this, this place of just bringing us down. I want to tell you that there's hope. For those who are like me and struggle with this moment to moment, in the past and maybe even in the future, I want to tell you that there's hope. There's hope in our Savior, Jesus Christ. There's hope for forgiveness, one. For our sins, as, forgiveness for our sins as Christ took our punishment when he died on that cross. There's hope for forgiveness. Second thing there's hope for, there's hope that we don't have to be stuck in our sin. Christ didn't stay in the grave. He defeated sin and rose again on the third day, and now we don't have to be a slave to our sin, but rather we can choose godliness by the power of the Holy Spirit. There's hope of forgiveness, and there's hope that we don't stay stuck in our sin. Now, if you're struggling with greed, or when you do in the future, there's three things I think we as Christians, we as Bible-believing Christians, can do as a response when we are convicted of our greed. One, confess and repent. This shows that you are dependent on God. You realize that God is in control You've sinned against him, and you need to confess and repent and acknowledge that he is still in control of your life. You need to give that control to him. Second thing, find your joy in Jesus. Dwell on the truths and the joys that are found in having a relationship with Jesus. So after we confess and repent, we go back and we remind ourselves of how Jesus has loved you and loved me, and we see how Jesus has been faithful to us in our past and in our present and then we teach ourselves how Jesus is going to be faithful and love us in the future. We see this in Scripture, right? He's going to come back. He has not forgotten about His church. There are truths in the future that we can dwell on that should bring us joy, that we could spend eternity with God someday. The third thing we can do is start looking out for the interest of others. Have a generous heart that instead of only looking for me, myself, and I, I can start seeing needs and other people. And not just seeing them, but meeting them. I can start caring for others instead of just caring for myself. We see this process of being convicted of an outward action to addressing a heart issue and then living a life that glorifies God from the inside out. This is something that... Um, I've been learning. I'm a, a couple of us here at the church are taking an online biblical counseling class. And um, something that I've been learning is when you see sin uh, and convicted of it and how to deal with it um, and, and how to eventually then um, experience some heart transformation. And so we see this process in this story. We see this man who is struggling with an, an outward expression of greed. 
right? Outward expression of greed. External display of an inward attitude of sin. He's only worried about his own interests. He's only worried about how he can gain from a certain situation. Okay? So outward expression. And then we see this inward motivation that Jesus exposes in him. We see this inward motivation uh, of, of idolatry that he's actually worshiping his possessions more than his relationship with God. And then we see that there's an actual vertical thing that is exposed that is broken, and that's because greed ultimately has this root of you are unbelief, this, this not trusting in God. There's this root issue in this man's life. And so when we have greed, we have to, when we're convicted of our outward action, we look at what's our motivation, and then we see the root issue of this. And this is where change starts to happen, is when we recognize when we sin, this is any sin in general. What is the root issue of this? Okay, I need to confess, I need to repent, I need, I need to go vertical again with my relationship with God, confess, repent, be dependent back on God, not on myself, dependent on God. And then what? Next thing I need to address this motivation of how can I love others? How can I serve others? What is my motivation to looking out for the interests of others? And then going and being generous in heart. You see this transformation from being exposed uh, of an outward attitude or an outward expression of an inward attitude of sin, addressing it at the core, and then letting that heart transformation that's happened transform you into how you live outwardly. And as Christians, we are called to live with a generous heart. We're called to live with others' interests in mind. Philippians 2, 1 through 4 says this, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affliction and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And this, and this here's where we get into what we're talking about. This is Paul addressing Christians in Philippians. I think it's true for us right now, today. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not only on his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. So we see this process of being convicted of an outward action, addressing the heart issue, and then living a life that glorifies God from the inside out. In the end, our life is not about storing up earthly treasures for ourselves, but rather having eternal riches toward God as we live our lives with eternity in mind. You see this? In the end of this parable, God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? What, in this parable, what, what, God is addressing this man in the parable, this farmer, it's like, you put so much hope in your possessions and what stuff you had, you can't take that with you. You can't. Whose will they be? The ironic part about this is it's probably going to be actually left to the poor peasants anyway. 
that this man oversaw and had. Whose will they be? That's how it is who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So what's the reverse side of that? Living with eternity in mind. How do we store up heavenly treasures? By living a life that glorifies God. By living a life that follows what God calls us to do. Loving God and loving others. How do we summarize the Bible in two sentences, hype students? Love God and you love others. Simple as that. How do you want to glorify God? You love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and you love your neighbor as yourself. You look out for their interests, and that's an expression of your love for God. So in the end, our life is not about storing up earthly treasures for ourselves, but rather having eternal riches toward God as we live our lives with eternity in mind, as we live to glorify God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you right now. God, I pray for my own heart and for anybody who else is in here. God, for those of us who struggle with greed, for those who have moments where they place something above you, a possession or some sort of wealth, God, I pray that we would repent, that we would ask for forgiveness. God, I pray pray that you would humble our hearts. God, I pray that you would change our hearts to glorify you. And one that lives for others and lives for you, not ourselves. God, I pray that we would just serve you today, this week, and the rest of our lives. God, I pray that we give you everything we would praise your name with all that we have. God, we love you. We serve you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now we're going to take a couple moments. Um, there's going to be some music playing. And I just want you to sit and I want you to reflect. And if you've had any moments and you've recognized this greed, sin of greed in your own heart, your own life, I pray that you take these moments of just reflection and just really pray to God. Really focus on that, that heart change and ask God to change your heart and your attitude in it. So we're just going to take a few moments and then I'll come back up and close this out in prayer. Later in Luke 12, verse 34, after Jesus continues teaching, he says this, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I pray as we go throughout today and throughout this week and through the rest of our lives that we will look towards eternity for our treasure, that we will give God our entire hearts and our lives as we go out from here this morning.